Katie Anything. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I am your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad that you're here. I know you sent in your questions and you're wondering where Karina is. Unfortunately, she had to reschedule our we just have a lot of scheduling conflicts and she was out of town and just got back so we haven't had a chance to connect but don't worry I still am going to get through your questions and we will have her on as soon as we can find a date that works for both of us without further ado oh today sorry with a little bit more to do um we have nine questions and if you're looking to get your question answered just know that I do have a patreon page go to patreon.com forward slash katie morton each month actually I'm recording this on Tuesday and tomorrow is the monthly live stream for my patreon patrons so um just know that each month I have a live stream over on patreon where I answer questions for those of you in the $20 tier and above and anybody on my patreon page has access to those live streams they last about three hours we get through probably like 25 or 30 questions so head on over to patreon.com forward slash katie morton and check out the tiers because there's more than just that there's extra videos there's a discord etc okay let's get into this week's questions question number one says when it comes to trauma therapy do you actually have to talk about the specific event or events to be successful with it or can you still still heal from trauma by working on other aspects that are indirectly related to it without actually quote unquote telling the story now it looks like we have like three or four comments on top of this but let's just dive right in now when it comes to trauma therapy there are many what we call modalities which really just means different types of therapy or ways that treatment can work meaning we can have talk therapy that's one modality where we talk through specifically the events that took place as much as we can remember in as much detail as we're able to to talk about it without dissociating or becoming completely dysregulated because just fyi we cannot process trauma if we are not present it's like we're not giving our brain and body another chance to work through it because we're essentially not present okay so we can do talk therapy where we talk it through and that works for about 40 percent of people so, you know, almost half of us, that'll be like, A-okay, good. The other 60% of us are going to need something additional or something different, meaning that we might want to do talk therapy plus EMDR. I have videos if you're wanting to know what EMDR is, but in short, it's when it's called bilateral stimulation, left to right, left to right. It can be by following something. It can be by tapping. It can be by hearing buzzes in our ears, whatever. We do that while we talk through um, portions of the situation or uh, the way that it made us feel. Like right now, I'm actually currently in my own EMDR. We haven't started the tapping yet. I'm only like on session three. But she told me that you don't have to, in EMDR, talk through the events in a crazy amount of detail. That's not necessary for the processing to still happen. There's also things like somatic experiencing where we notice how it, we're feeling it in our bodies and we work to move that energy out. That's just a few of them. There's also schema therapy. There's a ton of different uh, internal family systems or IFS type of therapy. The options are endless. So if you aren't able to talk about it or if you've talked about it and you're like, I still feel terrible, what gives it could be that we need to find you another type of therapy and there's no shame in that that everybody's different it'd be like getting mad that one antibiotic didn't work when you go to the doctor right i remember i used to get strep throat all the time before i got my tonsils out at the ripe age of like i don't know 
21. But I remember uh, some antibiotics wouldn't work on me. And the doctor was like stumped. Think of it like that. Sometimes one therapy just doesn't work. So if you find yourself unable to participate in therapy for whatever reason, or it not benefiting you, it's okay to try something else or add something on. Okay. Now, so you can actually heal without telling the story. Now, there are comments on this says, as an add-on, I've been emotionally and sexually abused and I developed an eating disorder and BPD, otherwise known as borderline personality disorder. My father yelled and cursed at me a lot growing up and he still does. I was kind of neglected. I've been self-harming since I was four and nobody noticed. And the sexual assault was from a woman. We need to talk about that more too. I feel like a lot of people always assume that it's a man, but abuse and, uh, or sexual abuse, assault, anything like that can happen man or woman. I'm 21 now and I feel like I'm never going to feel well and I'll never be able to recover because even if I talk a lot about it in therapy, I don't believe what I've been through is enough to feel the way that I feel and I think I'm just broken. Now, other types of treatment might help you here, but what we're stumbling on is shame and that thought that you're broken, something's just wrong with you, you're never going to feel right, it was all your fault, you're making it into a bigger deal than it was. All of that comes from our trauma response. Unfortunately, shame is so closely connected. And why? I don't know. My best guess is that we feel shame out of trauma because when we're traumatized, something happened to us that is terrifying and potentially life-threatening or at least you know emotionally threatening. And it doesn't make sense. And we do the best we can to try to make it make sense. And when we don't have all the information and the thing that happened is harmful, reckless, and no one should do it to another human, it's not going to make sense. And so how we make sense of it is by blaming ourselves because the only thing that we do know is us. And we're like, well, maybe something's wrong with me and I brought it on myself and maybe I went there. You know, I could have not gone there. That's my fault because we don't have any other information or any other way to make sense of it. So we take it on ourselves. Does that make sense? And so what that's what this person who wrote this add on question is going through is that shame experience. And so my encouragement for you is to talk to your therapist, not about the trauma anymore, because it sounds like you've talked about it. And you're like, that's all fine, fucking dandy, but I still feel terrible. Talk to them about this. Say, I still feel like I'm broken. And like, what happened just wasn't as big of a deal. Or like, I don't know, like, Maybe the way that I feel is like, isn't commensurate with it and something's wrong with me. And you can even say like, I talked to this therapist online and she said it was shame-based because truly I feel like that's what's holding you back. And the way through it is going to be to, to share about that and your therapist can help you work through it. Just so you know, random factoid, um, kind of the antithesis of shame is honesty, confidence, compassion. I know those are all things that you're like, but those are things we can work on in therapy, right? That's why we have our therapist to help guide us. So let them know. Okay. And trust me, it can and will get better. Another add-on says, yes, please. I would also like to know about this. My therapist is a male and I have a hard time telling him details of my sexual abuse. I shut down. Even if I open up, I feel exposed and vulnerable later, which gives me sleepless nights. Should we explore EMDR in such cases? You definitely can. But like I said, there's a ton of different types of treatment. So don't think if EMDR doesn't work or it's not as effective as, as you'd want, that that's the only option too. Because like I said, there's a ton of different things. And so let your therapist know that it's really hard and see um, see if EMDR is what you're looking for. Okay, but remember there's like somatic experiencing, uh, schema therapy, internal family systems, 
all sorts of things. And maybe even just seeing a woman. Sometimes changing the type of therapist that we see is helpful. So I've had patients who have told me that because um, I moved offices over the years because I was subletting. So depending on who I could sublet from. One of my patients uh, stopped seeing me. She was like, your office is too stressful. I was in Westwood and the parking was kind of stressful. And I was like, I'm so sorry. You know, I said I validate for parking, but, it, you know, I know just like finding a spot is blah, blah, blah. Um, and I've had people say, you know, to me online that their therapist's office just didn't feel comfortable or the way that they talked to them just kind of reminded them of their abuser or something about it, right? So don't think that you, that any therapist is going to be offended we need to have a good experience in therapy with our therapist and it has to be, they have to be the right fit for us, for us especially to open up about things like trauma and abuse and like vulnerabilities from our past, okay? So allow yourself the freedom to find a different type of therapy, find a different therapist or all of the above, okay? Another person says, yes, this. As an add-on, I have a notebook with all of the details of my sexual abuse that I can remember as as I cannot talk about it at all, unless in very broad general statements, which I feel completely disconnected from. I am seeing a therapist and she's amazing, but she isn't trauma specialized and I'm terrified of shocking her and burdening her with the horrific details. How do I try to talk to, to her about the details? That is if it's important. And how would I bring up the conversation of my notebook? Thanks for all that you do. Oh, of course. Um, okay. The not being able to talk about it, and, and you said it and feeling disconnected, tells me that it's so emotionally charged, and rightfully so, right? It's a trauma. So you're like, Ugh. even the thought of talking about it is overwhelming. So with that, I would tell your therapist that if you did your broad general statements and let them know that when you even try to talk about it, you feel disconnected. If we can get that out, we're good. Um, and you could even tell them, don't, I encourage you not to bring your notebook with you to therapy just yet. I want to get you to a place where you feel okay saying, and by the way, I do have this notebook where I've written down a lot of the details because I can't talk about it. And I don't know if it was helpful, but you could share that. Like writing it out, I did find helpful or writing it out actually made it worse. You know, you can share with them about your experience creating that. But we need to get you to a point where you can tell them about it. And I don't want you to have it with you because I've heard from my patients in the past that even bringing their notebooks or journals in makes them think that they're going to have to share it with me. And then it makes it even harder to open up and talk about it. Does that make sense? So not having it with you will mean there's no pressure for you to give it to her right then and there. We can tell her about it. We can share what we can share at the pace that feels okay. And work from there. But letting them know, sometimes there's a sneaky way in you guys where we don't have to talk about the trauma, the abuse, the whatever straightforwardly. We can tell them about the difficulty doing that and we can address that. And that's what I'd encourage you to do. Um, I also think that, like I said before, like EMDR and other types of therapy might be easier, might be some an, a better place to start. Because the goal of EMDR, just so you know, because I'm learning more myself as I'm in it, right? is to help us not feel so overwhelmed or dysregulated. And when I use the term dysregulated, what I really mean is like feeling panicked, being thrown into that stress response, you know, fight, flight, freeze, fawn, where I feel like uh, charged up. So that's why it could cause dissociation, could cause a panic attack. It could just cause me to like cry in public. Oops, sorry, hit my microphone. Uh, cry in public, fall apart, you know, not be able to focus, 
all those things. And so the goal of EMDR is to get us to a place where we can engage with our life without feeling that way. Cool? Okay. So that hopefully will help as well. Now let's move on to question number two. And it says, I get super easily attached to people and the attachments can be all consuming. I want to find a therapist, not specifically to talk about that, but I'm sure it'll come up. And I'm not sure what kind of person to look for. I find it very difficult to be open with people and to trust them. I think it would be easier to do that with the kind of person that I would become attached to, but I would also be worried that my strong attachment would be a distraction. It could. Do you have any advice about what type of person to look for? Great question. If I saw someone that I wouldn't attach to, it would be in the knowledge that I would find it very hard to know what I was looking for in a therapist and when I eventually found them to be open with them. But if I was attached to my therapist, I think I'd be tempted to say that I thought they say what I thought they wanted me to, which isn't helpful in the end, right? And I'm likely to become totally obsessed. I can see both scenarios being helpful to play out in the therapy room so I can learn to manage them in real life. But I don't know if I'm willing to put myself in the position of becoming attached because it's a lot. Yeah, it sounds like it's all consuming, right? I know that the relationship in therapy is the most important indicator of success. So I would be grateful if you had any thoughts. Many thanks. Of course, of course. Okay, let's dive into this. Now, my first of all, my recommendation isn't about the type of person per se, but it's for you to find an attachment-based therapist. There are therapists who specialize specifically in attachment. I know. Also, let's say we look in our area. Nobody is that person. Trauma-informed or trauma-specialized therapists also usually are very good with this. Another option, because we all need options, is finding a dialectical behavior therapist or a DBT-based therapist. That's like someone such as myself. And the reason that I bring up those options is because each of those types of therapists understand attachment in somewhat similar fashions and are able to uphold very healthy boundaries with you in therapy um, and help you work through what what this is, where this is coming from, where... Um, how long this has been going on, I'd assume most of your life. Um, what types of people do you find yourself attached to? What types of people do you not? Can we figure out where, you know, again, we're just going to kind of dig in because I have, obviously it's attachment based, has something to do with our childhood and something to do with the way that our parents were there or not there or whatever. Um, and so that will help you kind of tease that out. Now, I honestly, I know it's going to sound really weird, but I don't, I don't know which would be better. Uh, being attached to your therapist happens to a lot of people. It's something most therapists can manage and work through. But the fact that you think it's so exhausting pushes me into the space where I'm like, I don't think we want that. I think that might be worse, worse than not wanting to attach, but I'm not, I don't feel strongly either way. I think not attaching to them will give you more space to start opening up and start working on it. And so if you feel Mm, I don't know if the word strong enough or able, I guess is a better word. If you feel able to meet with a therapist, you said you're kind of looking into seeing a therapist. Um, if you feel okay seeing them and if you feel that attachment kind of pull, we don't make the next appointment or we do a consultation on the phone or in person. I'll, they offer that. I did that with my therapist. Um, maybe we can do that and see if we get that little, you know, that feeling that we're like, ooh, I like them, huh? And we want to become obsessed and we feel that so familiar attachment pull. 
we don't make that appointment. We say, you know, I'm already kind of feeling attached to you and that's not what I'm looking for. That's okay. Move on to someone where we don't quite feel that kind of way. But like I said, um, I don't really feel strongly either way. It's just because you said it's exhausting and you don't really like it. And so that's why I think we'd want to find you someone you don't have that feeling with. And it's not that we shouldn't like them. Um, we just shouldn't feel that that internal quick pull where then we're like obsessed. It should be like, hmm, I don't hate them. Let's start there, okay? Give that a go. That's where my gut tells me we should be going with this. And if you find an attachment-based DBT or trauma specialist, that those will all be really helpful because they, like I said, they all understand attachment and boundaries and can really help you work through this because it's coming from somewhere. It's, you know, almost like the thing that's interesting that I think many of my patients forget, and I even forget to mention it to you guys, is when we struggle with attachment and we find ourselves, oh, I love my therapist. I'm attached. Oh, I want to see them all the time. I wish they were my best friend. I want to call them all. I want to be part of like their group, right? We can feel all these things. I wish they were my, my mom. We can think, wish they were my boyfriend, girlfriend, whoever. We can feel all of that. It's not actually about the therapist at all. It has nothing to do with us. That attachment, as embarrassing and shame-filled as it can sometimes be, I've heard from a lot of my patients, they like hate tell telling me that they feel this way. It's very normal, but it has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with your therapist. And sometimes it's helpful to remember that. It actually has nothing to do with them. It's because something about them reminds us of someone that we wish was there for us in a different way or someone we already were attached to or something, right? It's filling that void in some some fashion. And so that's really it. it has nothing to do with them. Sometimes it helps. Anyway, I hope that gives you some ideas of where to start and who to find to talk to. Let's move on to question number three. And this question says, hey, Katie, I am 25 and I have a chronic illness, which is life limiting. In the past year, it's become very serious. And about five months ago, during a long stay in the hospital, my doctors told my family and me that we should prepare for the worst. Oh, I'm so sorry. How scary. I was ready for it to happen. About a month later, I started to feel better and my test results improved. My doctors are very surprised, but I have continued to feel better. I am still getting stronger and I'm almost able to live my life as though nothing happened. But rather than being overjoyed at getting what I wished so hard for, I just feel anxious all the time. Of course, you were traumatized. We'll talk about this. I'm terrified of dying. And now that it's nearly happened, my fear is even worse. I feel guilty that some of my friends have died and I've been lucky and am not able to make the most of it. I know that everything will be taken away in a very short space of time. And in the end, it's all just a matter of luck. Do you have any thoughts about how I can live a good life while not certain? not having certainty about my long-term health. Thank you very much. Of course. First of all, I'm so sorry you're going through this at the young age of 25. I mean, shit, that's a lot. And I want I want to just acknowledge how overwhelming this is. Because what has happened here is your life was threatened and you were traumatized. We often forget about medical trauma. And I feel like that's a video that needs to exist either on my Patreon page as an extra or on YouTube or something, but it needs to exist somewhere. Because going to the doctor and like I've had a friend who went back into therapy actually after this, she hemorrhaged after her last baby and they couldn't stop the bleeding. They couldn't figure out where it was coming from. And we thought she might die. It was really scary. She was terrified. Um, she had trauma, a trauma response after because she feared for her life, right? You clearly feared for your life. You were told to expect the worst. We need to start acknowledging that this is trauma 
And that's why you have anxiety. Um, one of the key components of trauma is wanting to avoid things that remind us of the trauma. And so you're just like constant reminders. So you're probably hypervigilant and potentially even more exhausted than your illness might be causing you to feel. So I just want to say that you were traumatized. Let's start treating it as such. We can, I mean, the guilt, the survivor's guilt that you're kind of feeling because you've had friends that have died. Um, unfortunately, and this answer sucks. I'm so sorry. Unfortunately, when it comes to survivor's guilt, the best way to navigate out of that is to manage that self-talk because we have to like, first, I immediately, when anybody ever says guilty, I always want you to think, what would it mean for you to be in a court of law and them to find you guilty? We need to start thinking about guilt that way, right? Guilty means I've done something wrong. It's proven. There are facts there. And yes, I know people can be, you know, misjudged and um, what's the word, you know, uh, falsely imprisoned, right? But I'm not, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about if you were actually guilty of something, that means you've done wrong. There's evidence. It's been proven. Now, in this case, you feel guilty that some of your friends have passed away already and you're lucky that, you know, and you haven't made the best of it, blah, blah. What have you done that's wrong? You said you haven't been able to make the most of it. So that's, that's what's wrong. I'm just curious. Sometimes it's good to ask these questions and to think about it and to check our facts because these thoughts live rent free in our heads, swirling around, making us feel like shit and making it harder for us to enjoy this life that we've been given, right? And harder for us to process through the trauma we just sustained. So pay attention to how you talk to yourself because that's the way out of that survivor's guilt is to check our facts and to notice that talk. And not that we have to try to turn it into positive talk. We just have to try to turn it into something not as negative. So if the thought is, I'm such a piece of shit for not taking advantage of this life that I'm, I'm, I'm so lucky. Oh, instead of that, we say something like, you know what? I'm open to the thought that maybe, maybe this is the best I can do right now. That still fucking sucks and I'm mad about it. But maybe that's the best I can do. See? It's not positive, but it's definitely not as negative. And trust me when I tell you that you will feel the difference. Okay. Now, living a good life while having an uncertainty about long-term health. I mean, my best advice when it comes to living with like a terminal illness, a potentially terminal illness, take time to do the things that you love and journal I know that sounds crazy. That those are the two I recommend, but usually if we have a terminal illness or, you know, some kind of um, life limiting chronic illness, it can be hard for us to, to imagine any future and we can put things off because we're too busy trying to do, you know, we need to make time for those things that we love because essentially life is too short and Everybody knows that, but when we have a life-limiting chronic illness, we know it even more, right? So spend some time each and every week or day, whatever you can manage doing some of the things that you love or things that you would really want to do. The time is now. Now, the journaling is because dealing with all of this, managing the trauma of our illness, managing the guilt that we're feeling, the survivor's guilt, managing the symptoms, managing all the shit that we're dealing with and maybe even the emotions of other people from our family, right? 
that can be overwhelming. And I want you to have a place to put all of that, to dump it. So it's not swirling around in your head, making you feel any worse. So journal each and every day, I would encourage you to journal like at least a page of just how you're feeling, what's going on. But I, up to a max of like 30 minutes or an hour of journaling, I think is fine just to get it out. So it's not swirling. And that's how we make the most of it. I know that's not, again, not a good answer. It's like a lot of work, but you're worth it. Okay. Let's move on to question number four. And this question says, hi, Katie, happy Thursday. Happy Thursday. It says, I was wondering where an attachment to a therapist might even come from. Even if I grew up with parents who met my needs, I'll get into this. I'm almost obsessed with the idea of my therapist. She is someone I look up to a lot, even though our relationship is one-sided and I know virtually nothing about her. I Google her professional pages and look for her socials often, even when I know there's no information to be found. It's like just the act of looking her up makes me feel better. I can't get the idea of her and how she talks to me and how much she just seems to care about me out of my head. My internal monologue is even directed toward her almost all the time. Like I'm explaining every, I'm explaining simple daily things to her as if I'm in therapy. Again, I really feel like I grew up with caregivers who met my needs, so I don't know what void I'm stuffing her into. I've had a couple mental health professionals become suspicious of an OCD diagnosis. Oh, and maybe this is indicative of that. It could be. I also have dissociative tendencies. It doesn't make any sense that I feel like nothing about this is normal. Oh, it it doesn't make any sense. And I feel like nothing about this is normal. Plus, it's kind of weird in a super exhausting way, I can imagine. Thank you for this podcast. It has taught me so much. I listen to every single one. Oh, I love that. Wonderful. Um, Okay, let's break this down. Now, when we become obsessed, I'm going to go through all the options, okay? Becoming obsessed with a therapist and the fact that you find it super exhausting and weird and you don't really like it, usually, maybe not in your case, usually it has to do with some attachment stuff, um, feeling. And the thing that I don't really know, because you said you felt like your parents met your needs. I'm always curious about emotional needs or if they worked away from home or any of those things that we might think, well, it wasn't that bad. Notice if you're minimizing anything from your childhood. Again, you may not be, but let's just be curious, not judgmental about it. Okay. So maybe that could be part of where that's coming from. Let's dig into our emotional needs as a kid. Did we feel like our parents listened and checked in on us, um, held us when we cried or supported us in the way that we needed, we felt cared for? Just think about that. Okay. Now, if you're like, nope, everything was gravy. It was all good. Then OCD has, I can see why they were a little bit suspicious of it. The The fact that it feels what we call ego dystonic, meaning you don't like it. You're like, oh, it feels kind of super weird and super exhausting and blah, 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 right? Ugh, we don't like that we do it. We don't know why we're doing it. OCD is like that. It's ego dystonic. Um, obsessive compulsive disorder, or OCD personality disorder. So OCDPD is ego syntonic. We love it. We'll tell people like, oh, this is just my gift or I prefer to do this on my own, right? We, we like the kind of obsessive compulsive behavior. That's the difference between the two, if you ever wondered. But with you, I wonder, I'd have to, even just the way that you talked about this, the fact that you said looking her up, even just the act of it makes you feel better, does push me a little bit toward that OCD thought as well, because it sounds like the obsession is the therapist and maybe knowing more about them. Like you said, you um, you wish uh, you like the idea of her. 
You like the way she listens to you and seems to care about you. We like obsess about it. And this, I don't know if this is true, but those thoughts like build and build and build. And then we feel like a compulsion to look up more stuff about her or to try to read more about her. Maybe I'm not sure. And then does the anxiety or stress kind of feeling go away maybe for a little bit and then build again. That's how we know it's OCD because we have obsessions and we have compulsions and the obsessions are, you know, like the things that we can't stop thinking about, the things we can't stop worrying about. Usually in OCD, we worry something bad is going to happen, but maybe in your case, that's just not it. And the compulsion is the thing that we feel we compelled to do in order to alleviate the anxiety caused by the obsessions. So notice if that's where you think this is coming from. If any of that rings a little bit true, let your therapist know about this. There's no shame in it. It's I know it feels weird to you, but like I said, attachment to a therapist is incredibly common. It can come from a lot of different places. Um, it's something we've all dealt with and we're usually very well versed in helping manage it, but let's talk it out and let them know um, and let them know about the potential OCD stuff. Be like, mm, I'm not sure where it's coming from, but I feel like it could be coming from here. That's all helpful. There's there's nothing wrong with letting them know what you've what you've asked me, what you've talked with your old therapist about. Um yeah, because it's got to be coming from somewhere. I hope that helps. Okay, keep me posted. Okay, let's move on to question number five. And this question says, hey, Katie, my question has to do with still processing and dealing with trauma you sustained as a child. I grew up with an alcoholic father who eventually passed away due to his addiction to alcohol. I'm so sorry I had to go through that. But even now, I still haven't processed his death. I, it was close to six years ago. And what I saw and dealt with growing up. It just seems like it's a part of me and who I am. What are some of your, what is some of your advice besides going to therapy, which I've been in now for about three months to process this trauma and try to look at it more as a trauma in your life instead of just something that's part of who you are and something you're just supposed to deal with. Love your podcast. Okay. My first word of advice, please get into Al-Anon. Al-Anon, I know, and and not everybody's going to love it. But it's really helpful when we grew up with an alcoholic in our home. Al-Anon is essentially AA for the family. There's also, um, a what's it called? Adult children or children of alcoholics. It's A-C-O-C-A, I think. Um, yeah, adult children of, anyway, you can look those up. And that can be incredibly helpful for us to get a sense of how this affected us and to better understand the ramifications of what we dealt with growing up and how it can change the way that we think about ourselves and our relationships and help you hopefully separate who you are with the trauma you sustained. And yes, I know it's hard and I don't even think it's necessarily a a terrible thing to think that you know, our trauma or our experience is part is part of who, what makes us who we are now. But I want you to be able to also see it as a trauma. I think those two things can coexist. And it's not necessarily unhealthy to think that it is part of who you are. I just don't want you to think that it's like, no big deal, right? Because it is a big deal. That was very tumultuous. And the, the probably what's preve- preventing you from processing the death is the fact that you were traumatized by this person. They were abusive. It it was hard for you to be around that. And so what you're dealing with is what we call complicated grief. I have a video. If you look up complicated grief, Katie Morton, it'll come up. Um, But yeah, that might help too. It's just, 
it's going to take some time. And I really think Al-Anon is where it's at. It's it's really cheap too. Like when you go to an Al-Anon, it's any donation that you can make, like a dollar, nothing, whatever. Don't feel like you have to drop like 20 bucks on the plate every time or anything like that. It's whatever you can afford to donate. I think um, when I had taken, because I took a patient a couple of times to try to get her into it. Um, I think we gave like five bucks. So, you know, whatever you can do. So that's, that's helpful. That's one of my biggest encouragement. There's also, there was a book that they offered. Let me look it up because I don't have it off the top of my head. Um, but there's books you can get. Um, the Courage to Change. That was really helpful to my patient. And yeah, that was, and Hope for Today. Hope for Today is another good one. So you can get those online used. Um, there's also the One Day at a Time in Al-Anon, but The Courage to Change and The Hope for Today are both available on Amazon. So you can look those up and just look up Al-Anon books and it's A-L space A-N-O-N books and they will come up. Um, I really think we need to, it's not just, and not to say just because that sounds like downplaying, but it's not just how it's affecting you Um you know, just the grief. It's it's all the ways that this alcoholic has affected your life and the way that you view relationships and probably enmeshment and codependency and maybe trouble with attachment and not to mention the trauma, right? So anyways, that I think is going to be life-changing and that is my encouragement to you. And noticing that self-talk and moving it from more of a negative and like, oh, this is just part of who I am. What am I have to deal with kind of space and into a, I'm open to the belief that I could change. Does that make sense? And I know this sounds very nuanced and you're probably wanting these big moves, these big changes. But when I tell you that Al-Anon and those books and journaling and just be, being more aware of it is going to be incredibly, incredibly helpful for you. And I believe that working through that and kind of acknowledging the alcoholic and the alcoholism and how it affects you, because alcohol is interesting. Alcohol and addiction in general is interesting in a home, especially when we grow up in it, because we don't know any different. And so the dynamics of the relationships, like the way the family operates around the addict and the the way that we uh, have conversations with each other and the connections and attachments and uh, lack of boundaries and all the things that can come up for it because of it is something that it can feel overwhelming, but it's very important for us to acknowledge it and not think, oh, it's just something I got to deal with. I mean, everybody grows up like this and, you know, that feels very minim minimizing. It feels very invalidating and it feels a lot like trauma. And kind of that shame that this is just part of me, right? It's just something I got to deal with. No, we can work through it. We can manage it. And I think Al-Anon will really help. Okay. There was another add-on. It said, I had a similar feeling with my grandmother. She was an alcoholic and my parents were the ones who brought it into the house. Buying upwards of four bottles of vodka a week. Wow. By age eight, my grandmother had me making her drinks for her. Wow, I'm so sorry. When I turned 18, I decided to cut my grandmother out of my life as she had been verbally abused, abusive and kicked us out of the house when we, when we didn't buy what she wanted. Wow. She had a lot of power in that house. That's interesting. She passed in 2018 and I was the one who had to call my dad to tell him his mom had passed. I resented my relationship with her for so long. And now I look back on everything and I don't know if I need to process the grief of losing my grandmother or losing the relationship that I had dreamed of. She was the only grandparent involved in my life, so I never had that n normal grandparent relationship. I just don't know. Does this need to be processed essentially as two griefs? Probably, but they're connected. The loss of the relationship and the actual death. Sorry for that being so long. I hope it relates. It totally relates. And yes, it is. 
there there's different proportions or different pieces to your grief. There's going to be the loss of the relationship and the fact that you're probably jealous of people who had regular relationship with grandparents. You're like, why did I get stuck with this person? Why do they have to be so harmful and abusive and an addict, right? We can be angry. We can be sad. We can be mad. We can be all these things. We can be confused and it all swirls together. And that grief is going to potentially, from what my gut tells me, be the hardest for you and the heaviest because you never really gave yourself an opportunity to to even consider that, right? So there's that. Then the other piece is the fact that she's now gone and the relationship can never be. That's why they're so connected. It can never be that relationship that you wanted. Again, grieving that loss of relationship, the relationship you dreamed of, right? It's like um, whether the addict in our home is a parent, a sibling, or other relative of ours, we always when we get out into the world and we have friends in school, we see what those other relationships are like and we can be really jealous of it. Oh, I want that. Why didn't I get that? And if the person's still alive, we can hope maybe they'll recover and then they'll get better and then I can work toward that relationship that I really want, right? But because she's passed away, we're going to have to grieve that loss that way. Does that make sense? And if you hear a growl, my dog is trying to talk to me. <laughs> so anyways, it's going to be both of those griefs, but I think they're so inextricably linked that one will inevitably kind of move back into the other. Do you see what I mean? Okay, I hope that's helpful. Okay, moving on to the next add-on. It says, adding to that, how can you disidentify, forgive, and move on when the trauma has a recurring or was a recurring thing? Not because of life events and general circumstance, but because of who your caregiver or family was. I know my caregiver suffered from intergenerational trauma, mental health issues, and addiction. But on one hand, that doesn't evoke enough empathy in me to forgive them. On the other hand, it's incredibly difficult to not feel the trauma is integral to who I am since it runs in the family. Thanks for all you do, Katie. Of course. Now, okay. I think I have a tough, a tough truth. Are you ready? When we talk about forgiveness, we often immediately, without realizing it, jump to what I would call acceptance or condoning the behavior, meaning that if we forgive them, we're saying it's okay. That's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is saying, I'm going to move on past what happened. I'm going to let that go. Okay? I know that that seems not right. We think forgiveness is different, but that's really what it is. And so I really encourage you to pay attention if when you think you're trying to disidentify, forgive and move on, that you're thinking that you have to condone their behavior and say that it's okay because it wasn't and it isn't. And that's why you're struggling with the empathy to forgive them. Forgiveness doesn't mean what you did was okay. Forgiveness means I'm not going to beat you up about it anymore. And I'm also not going to keep myself whole, held in that pain anymore. I'm going to let myself off the hook and I'm going to move on. Okay. Reframing it that way sometimes just allows for the forgiveness to happen because to hold on to something and to be angry really only hurts us, the person who's unable to do the forgiving. That fucking sucks. But we can still, we can forgive and not want someone in our life. We can forgive and have a different set of boundaries we have, right? That we've set. We can forgive and have the relationship dynamic be different. Forgiveness doesn't mean, hey, I'm cool with it. It's okay. Bye. We're fine. 
right? That can work in simple situations. When someone is late to meet us for dinner and they kept us sitting and waiting for 10 minutes or whatever, or 15 minutes, and they say, I'm so sorry, I, I should have left earlier and I hit traffic, I apologize. We can say, oh no biggie, that's fine, I, I forgive you. But in this situation, forgiveness is different. It's very, it's it can be too complicated. And so, I don't want to get, I could ramble about that forever, clearly. And so, the ability for you to forgive and move on. I think, again, I have to go with the, um, with the Al-Anon, if it's addiction, sounds like it's addiction in your family too. I think that that will be incredibly helpful and also help you understand what roles it plays in your life so that we don't pass on behaviors, not necessarily addictive behaviors, but behaviors and, uh, ways of interacting in relationships. We don't pass that on to our family, right? Or find ourselves in relationships, this can happen too, find ourselves in friendships and romantic relationships with people who are very similar to our abusive or addicted family members. Um, that's really how we do it. Uh, Therapy is going to help, Al-Anon is going to help, and it's going to take some untangling, but you'll get there, okay? And I know you're saying like they had inter- intergenerational trauma. It sounds like in a way you're feeling like it's maybe not their fault and you're having a tough time acknowledging their faults. I I don't know. You know, it's complicated, right? It sounds like you're like, well, they have a lot of mental health issues and intergenerational trauma and like this is where it came from. That can help us to understand. Maybe you're an intellectualized person where that's like your coping skill where you intellectualize everything to try to make sense of it. Addiction and abuse and difficulty growing up, there's... It doesn't make sense, you know, and there can be reasons, there can be causes, but that doesn't, again, does not condone the behavior. It doesn't make it okay. But you said that doesn't evoke empathy for you to forgive them. And so I really think, um, I think that again, the Al-Anon therapy and journaling will really help tease that out. Okay. Final add-on said, I hope that this is related, but how do you know when it's time for you to start processing trauma? Great question. Are there certain signs that your mind and body give you to indicate you're ready to address it? Yes. Number one, we are not currently being traumatized. That's a big one. And what will start happening is we'll start having flashbacks and dissociation and body memories kind of pop up with more regularity. And you could say, Katie, why? If I'm finally feeling better, why is it making me feel worse? Because it feels safe enough to unrepress all the stuff we've repressed. So you might find yourself feeling more tearful, feeling more on edge, having more symptoms, which I know sucks, but usually that is an indication from your mind and your body that it's ready to do that processing. And a huge piece of that is feeling safe or neutral, meaning we're not threatened, we're not in a shitty situation anymore, so that we can finally start doing that work. Okay? Let's move on to question number six. And this question says, hey, Katie, I recognize myself when I look at childhood photos, but still I don't feel any emotional connection or remember the situation when the photo was taken or the person who took it. Why is that? And how can I help myself remember my childhood? Trauma. Trauma is such an asshole. It can make us feel... uh, We can not even know who we are in photos sometimes. It can make our memory really hazy, really messy. Um, It can make it hard for us to remember certain situations. Anything that was overwhelming to us, meaning we didn't have the resources to manage emotionally what took place, can cause this kind of memory lapse. And a huge component of trauma and dissociation, if you didn't know, dissociation happens when 
what's happening in our environment is too much for our nervous system to manage. So it pulls the ripcord on reality. This can mean it pulls us out of self, depersonalization, or it pulls us out of environment, derealization. And when that happens, when we're in dissociation, when we're dissociated, it can make forming memory difficult, if not impossible. And everybody's different. Some people are like, oh, it's kind of like hazy, but I still see it. Some people are like, I have no memory. Some people are like, oh, it's like, you know, flickering through like a photo book, you know? So it just depends. Everybody's different. No judgments on what your situation is, but that's why this is happening. I think what was going on at the time was too much for you. And so therefore the memory is just really, it's missing or it's splotchy at best. Um, and working in therapy and trauma treatment can really help tease that out and help you understand why there's no emotional connection. Because I think you're disconnected from that time in your life because it was repressed. It might have been too overwhelming. And a huge piece to remember here, and I feel like I have to say this, is we often forget as adults what it was like for us to be children and what access or resources we really had. We forget that we couldn't just leave. Where are we going to go, right? We couldn't drive. We had no money. Like, uh, also, we wouldn't even have thought of that, right? We're a child. We have like no power in this situation. Sometimes we forget all we knew was our family. We thought that was normal. There can be all sorts of things like that. And so I encourage you to do your best to remember what it was like to be six, seven, eight, ten, whatever it was, right? It's hard sometimes. Being around children that age, if you have access, if like a friend of yours has kids, can be helpful. You're like, oh my God, yeah, I like really couldn't, you know, it reminds us of how dependent they are on the adults in their life to take care of them. Okay. I hope I didn't get too in the weeds on that, but that's kind of why that can happen. Now, um, it also, it could not, it, it's possible that it's not trauma. Maybe that word's too strong for you. Also, I've heard that from a lot of people, but it was overwhelming to your nervous system. Either way, you did not have the emotional or physical resources to manage what was happening. Okay. There was a comment on this says, Katie, as an add-on, since I have very little memory of my childhood before the age of 10 because childhood sexual abuse and my father's addiction and his death, I too don't really feel an emotional connection to pictures and I'm not sure if I really remember what actually happened and the emotions behind it or if I'm remembering only what I've been told happened and how people told me they felt. My question is, does it matter how I remember or just that I remember? I hope that my question makes sense. Of course it makes sense. So it doesn't really, it doesn't honestly matter if you remember. And it doesn't matter if people told you. The reason, the only reason these memories are important is when it comes to trauma processing. And it, I mean, no, for you, it might be distressing to not remember. So people around you are like, oh yeah, yeah, we did this. And you're like, oh, okay. But you still, they're like, I don't think I remember, but thanks for telling me. That's, that's fine. That can help fill in the gaps. Usually when I'm doing trauma timelines with my patients where I'm having them like place their traumas on their lifeline, you know, when did this happen around what age and we move it around until we've kind of, you know, we're guessing. Um, we can have people in the family help us fill that in, right? And also if we have questions, we're like, did that happen? They can be like, yep. Or someone can be like, I don't know, I wasn't there, you know, but they can really help that. And so it doesn't really matter how you remember um, or even that if you do remember, the the real work in trauma therapy or trauma treatment is in how we are experiencing our life now, what symptoms we have that are bothersome to us, and managing those, finding ways to mitigate that. And that could be through journaling, that could be through doing, you know, those full body shakes, that could be through doing all sorts of different things. Um, 
I got a question somewhere, I forget where, it could be even in this later, but someone had asked about like, if your mobility is restricted, how do you do full body shakes? And you can just stomp your feet. It just depends on what you have the ability to do. If you can shake out one arm at a time to make sure you're not moving too much, you know, um, there's all sorts of ways that we can do that. Even doing the fluttering your lips can help a little bit too. Um, Okay, I hope I answered that question. Uh, Let me know, follow up if if I didn't. Okay. Final add-on says, um, I have the exact opposite. I don't recognize myself at all when looking at pictures of myself as a child. I sometimes can remember the place where the photo was taken, but the little girl staring back at me does not look like me. I'm a victim of emotional neglect and physical abuse by my adoptive mother. Why can't I recognize the girl in the photo as myself when I sometimes can remember the trip we were on when the photo was taken? Thanks for all you do. Again, it's that dissociation. It's that abuse response. It's that removing yourself from reality a little bit, it can impair our ability to form memory during that time. And everybody has different levels of it. For you, you're like, I don't even know who that person is because like maybe we have no memory during that whole chunk of time, right? And I have a feeling due to the emotional neglect and physical abuse that that could have been what happened to you. And I'm so sorry, an adoptive mother, why adopt a child if you're not going to treat them with love and respect? Um, but due to the trauma and due to the dissociation or the dysregulation that you were feeling, that's why you don't recognize yourself. Um, an interesting thing when we do like work through the trauma and process, however, whether that's through talk therapy, EMDR, somatic experiencing, or all the things, um, sometimes, not 100%, but I'd say like 50-50 chance, sometimes you look at those photos later and you will recognize yourself. Um, but again, sometimes those memories never come back. Sometimes those memories don't exist. That does not mean that we cannot heal and that the trauma work isn't effective okay the trauma work is effective if we find in our life today that it's not impairing us in any way meaning we're not dissociating we're not having panic attacks we're not um you know struggling with like any kind of hypervigilance or exhaustion or insomnia nightmares all that stuff when those things are gone that's how we know that we have processed it unfortunately it has nothing to do with whether or not we have those full memories or whether we can recognize ourselves in photos. I know it can be distressing, but I don't want you to think that that's any indication of whether your treatment's working or not. Okay. Let's move on to question number seven. This question says, Hey, Katie, is there any benefit to revisiting places where you experienced trauma? Hmm. I'm going to start processing past trauma with my therapist soon, but I don't have a lot of clear memories from that time in my life. Seems to be a theme, right? So you're not alone. If you're out there thinking that something's wrong with you, it's not. Would going back to those places, possibly with my therapist, help bring back memories for me to process or could it be re-traumatizing? Now, the benefit would be that it could could, uh, help trigger memories. And that could be beneficial if we're looking to uh, recall certain things because we don't have anybody else in our life that can remember them for us and it drives us crazy and we really want to know, right? That could be beneficial. So we could do that. Um, could it be re-traumatizing? It also could. Now, here's the way that I would encourage you to, if you want to do this, a big if. You don't have to, but like I said, if you're really wanting to find those memories and see, and it drives you crazy, because I have patients of all different thoughts about this on the spectrum, from don't care, don't want to remember because it was bad, to I don't know how I'm going to process this if I can't remember every detail. This is going to drive me crazy. So and everything in between. Now, if you if you feel like you need to know, the key to this is to do it with your therapist. 
and build up your resources ahead of time. Resources aren't just coping skills. Resources are things you can do to help yourself feel okay or manage um, the upset that could come along the path as we do this. We're going to do like exposure therapy, essentially. So we're going to build up these resources that can calm our system down. This could be close your eyes, go to your happy place. This could be full body shake. This could be a grounding technique where we look around and we count things in the room that are brown or blue or black or whatever. Any of those things. We could bring a support animal with us or a support person like your therapist. We want to have those tools well worked, meaning the muscle of using them is very familiar. We have done it many, many times. We want to do that. And we want to practice and pretend and visualize ourselves going to these different places with our therapist in session and not actually doing it yet. And we want to build up to going there so that we don't get there and feel overwhelmed because it's that overwhelm that it would could cause us to become re-traumatized. Does that make sense? I hope so. So I think there is a benefit if you need that. Hey, to each their own when it comes to trauma processing. Whatever you need, you should get. Okay? Moving on to question number eight. It says, hey, Katie, can a narcissistic parent who has no desire to improve themselves tone down their narcissistic tendencies simply due to old age? This is a great question. Now, usually... Okay, so more than 50% of the time, a narcissistic parent, unfortunately, gets worse with age. Now, this is honestly because it goes untreated. They're unaware that they're even doing what they're doing. They think everybody's out to get them and everybody else is wrong. And they become really, really angry and frustrated more and more and more and more as they get older. Because essentially, from their point of view, even though it's not correct, Remember, but from their point of view, everybody's rude, disrespectful, an asshole, wronged them. Um, They can't count on anybody. They're not good enough, right? There's so many things that they think that are false, but they think them and they believe them because it helps them feel a little bit better, right? Everybody's fault. And they usually become very isolated as a result, right? I can't admit that I had fault in anything. No one wants to be my friend or family member anymore, I'm all alone. And so they kind of spiral out and they usually get really worse as they get older. Now, everybody can change. I'm a firm believer in that. And if somebody who is a narcissist maybe decides to take some ownership or acknowledges a few things, maybe a friend they finally listen to or someone they respect, you know, which does happen. Narcissists do look up to certain people, people that they think are like better than them. Not that they would say that, but they feel like they're an equal at least. Okay. Sometimes they can hear small words of wisdom from those people. And as people get older, it's possible because everybody's different, right? It's possible that they've kind of softened. Maybe they've lost their edge. Maybe they, um, I don't know, I usually see them get worse, but it's possible they get better. Let's say they are, they used to think that, you know, they were like a so good at business and that was like their main thing. And now they're retired. So maybe they've lost that kind of chip on their shoulder about it. I don't know. It's it's possible. It's not probable in my mind, but it's very possible. And I've heard from some of you that as your parents have aged, that they've they've lightened up ever so slightly and you felt that slight shift. And if that happens, you know what I just say? Take the win. That's wonderful. Um, but it's not, it's not usually the situation. Okay. Final question, question number nine says, how long does it take for a person to work through their trauma? Good question. As soon as I started discussing this with my therapist, my sleep and physical health has gone for a toss. Very common. We'll talk about that. My stress levels have skyrocketed over the past three to four months, and I don't feel interested in anything. 
I wish to get through this soon and look forward to what life has to offer. I understand the frustration and God damn it, why does it make it worse? But unfortunately it does. It's like, I know I've said this before, but it's like that old uh, little kids kind of rhyme where it's like uh, going on a bear hunt and then they come up to all these different things, a swamp, a mountain or whatever, and they can't go around it, can't go over it, can't go under it. You got to go through it. Trauma treatment's like that in many ways. We got to go through it. And going through it means we get all mucky. We get, like you said, your sleep and physical health's gone for a toss. Yeah, shit gets messy. Everything we repress from the last like umpteen years is like surging through us and it feels horrible. I don't know why this is true, but even in my own personal therapeutic work at the beginning of therapy, it always feels a little bit worse than it, than it will um, or a lot worse. And it's like, it's worse, it's worse, it's worse. And then to be honest, I don't, I wish I could give you a time, but let's say within the first year of treatment, we have like a aha or a breakthrough or a little moment in therapy where we're like, oh my God. That's when things start to shift and shift for the better and get slightly easier and easier and lighter and lighter, little by little. Okay. Again, there's not like a certain amount of time. Everybody's going to be different. I don't want you to feel like you need to rush because if we rush our trauma treatment, we could potentially re-traumatize ourselves and make it take longer. So my encouragement for you is to tell your therapist that all this stuff is feeling worse. You can't sleep. You're not feeling good. Um, and let's work on some coping skills to help manage that while we continue doing the work. Now you're three to four months in, it will get better. You will move through this. It does not take forever. Um, I know it can feel like forever and it already does, but I want you to let your therapist know that all this stuff is coming up and I feel like shit. And maybe we need to see a psychiatrist and potentially attempt, you know, take some medication, try some out again, talk to them, let them know your symptoms for a period of time until we get through this. Um, and if you feel like talk therapy is just taking forever and making me feel worse, there's nothing wrong with exploring an EMDR or a somatic experiencing or something different. Uh, maybe group therapy, right? We talked about like Al-Anon if we have an addict in our past. Those are all things that can be helpful and there's nothing wrong with some extra support and care. So how long does it take for a person to work through trauma? Unfortunately, it takes however long it takes. And I know that's a fucking horrible answer, but it does get better, okay? I think it's really that first year in my mind, um, up to the first year, where it's just really horrible and it's extra work. And for some people, it lasts a few months and then they start feeling the benefits. Um, for others, it takes a little bit longer. Even for me in my own therapy, I think like a good three months of me just feeling ugh, before I come back around the bend and like, oh yeah, whew, feeling better. So give yourself a little breather, offer yourself some compassion. You're doing the best you can. Let your therapist know that this is becoming impossible and super uncomfortable. And let's see what other resources are available for you. Okay. Thank you all so much for sending in your questions. I hope my answers were helpful. Like I said, if I missed something or didn't answer your question fully, you let me know. Have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your week and I will see you next time. Bye.